wonderful, enthusiastic worship. I'm sure the Lord is well pleased with that. Uh, I hope you had a great week. Let's, uh, let's get into Daniel this morning. Uh, if you've not been a part of this series and you're coming in after missing some Sundays with the end of summer here, uh, the big story of Daniel, the, really the overreaching theme of Daniel, uh, is despite present circumstances, God is in control. That is the message in these first six chapters of Daniel. And it's a message for people who live in a, a flawed, sinful world. Uh, it's a message for stressed out people who are living their real lives in the real world. Uh, much of the Christian community lives through exile, uh, which means displacement or in a minority position. You in America have enjoyed for decades a, a, a majority uh, scenario, very different. Uh, we are now entering post-Christian America. We have entered into post-Christian America. It's not going to be the same. You're not going to be the majority opinion. Christianity is not going to be the prevailing influential uh, philosophy that uh, dictates culture as we go forward. And that is the norm for most Christians who have lived historically. They've not enjoyed the majority position. So the Bible is filled with stories and conversations about how to live out your faith as the minority position, not as the majority position. And so uh, when you feel like, gosh, things are not going our way culturally, okay, that's, that, that's not great, but there is a way to live through that. Things are cyclical, and uh, we'll, we'll pray that culture will turn at some point, uh, when, when uh, Miss Sarah came in, she's uh, a vice principal, acting principal all week long, principal's out, and so vice principal became principal in the first week of school, and I'm sure it was, you know, pure chaos, uh, but uh, when she came in, I gave her a big hug, because I know she had a stressful week, and, uh, but I, I'm sure, absolutely sure that she crushed it, uh, which makes me think about when I was in school, Sarah, it was a million years ago. And I went to school uh, in the days when teachers would take a wooden paddle and beat your backside. Okay? Now, just no, nobody get freaked out here because I'm not going to go caveman on you. Uh, I'm just stating my history, not advocating right now. Okay? Uh, I went to school in that era. And I went to, uh, grew up in Arlington through the uh, fifth grade, sixth grade. We moved to East Texas where my dad would pastor a couple of churches, Canton, Palestine, out, out in East Texas. And those country schools will paddle your backside. I'm telling you. And the teachers had wooden paddles this big. And they sat in the little chalk tray under the, under the chalkboard, you know. And uh, they had signatures all over the paddles. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And holes drilled in the paddles. Okay, I've got my crowd here this morning. Your butts have been beaten too, haven't they? I can tell already. Okay, so, and, and in, when we lived in the country, now you people from Toronto, yeah, this is language you want to understand, but people grew up in, in the country of East Texas here, we called it getting licks. Right? Getting licks. It wasn't a paddling, wasn't a spanking. Uh, we actually would also use the term whipping or whooping which implies a whip and, and like some other whole, you know, it wasn't that way. It was uh, getting licks. And uh, the teachers would not put up with you if you were disrupting the class. Go to the hall, 
Ooh, still that way, Miss Letty? Go to the hall. And there were some teachers that delighted in leaving the classroom door open while they paddled you in the hallway outside so everybody could hear you whimper. It struck the fear of God into the hearts of the timid. And uh, so anyway, I, I, I said I wouldn't go caveman on you, but I just want to say this. I want to come clean this morning, confess my crimes. Uh, I remember three good paddlings in school, Sarah, between 7th and 8th grades in that two-year span. I remember three good ones that really left an impression uh, where it needed to be impressed. And uh, uh, today they would be child abusers because I'm telling you, one football coach left marks on my backside for disrupting his science class. Uh, And I want to say this, I'm not scarred for life. I do have a vivid memory though still, I can tell you that. I'm not scarred for life and I want to say this, I remember three good paddlings, 7th and 8th grade. I deserved a whole lot more. I deserved a whole lot more. Those three were not the only three I deserved. There were about 13 more I deserved that I didn't get. But I want to say this as we start this message this morning. Your transgressions do have a way of catching up with you eventually. And you may get away with things and get away with things and get away with things and get away with things. But eventually, the Bible even has this line in it. Be sure your sins will find you out. And you can get away with a lot for a long time, but eventually you're going to meet justice and judgment. And you say, well, why would you torment us with those thoughts? Because those thoughts are going to keep you out of a lot of trouble. Because in your conscience, you want your Holy Spirit to be whispering to you, don't do this. There are consequences to this action. And sometimes the consequences are very severe for a little bit of fun. Okay? Sometimes consequences can last a lifetime for a little bit, a moment uh, of pleasure. And so you just want to be careful with that. And uh, I'm not advocating that we go back to the Stone Age. Certainly not advocating that at all. And uh, I think there's some good benefits from corporal punishment. And I think there's a whole lot of terrible benefits from uh, uh, side byproducts of corporal punishment. There's good and bad. And the problem is there is no school that parents go to to know when to corporally punish, how far to push corporal punishment, how intense to... There's no school parents go to. And so some parents can be very heavy-handed. And you can take it to a wrong place where you're actually hurting your children. I mean mentally, psychologically. So I just, I just want to put some things out there this morning and say to you, find the balance, uh, you know, but that's really not my message this morning. My message this morning is... You can get away with stuff for a while, but then at some point judgment comes, okay? That's something you're going to discover. You're going to get a sense of deja vu in chapter 5 this morning. Once again, we have a court narrative. We're in court. We're going to see a thing play out in the, in the palace, and it's being chronicled for you. Once again, we have a royal banquet motif. This is very common in Esther and in Daniel. You have a royal banquet motif. And the royal banquet is bringing all the leaders of the nation together. This is almost always to unify power, to uh, boost morale of the executive team uh, when they're going to face war, as you saw in the book of Esther at the war council, uh, uh, or 
uh, here, they're facing the Medo-Persians who are camped outside the gates. Rally the troops together. Unify them together. Once again, in chapter 5, we're going to have a contest. Pagan idols versus a holy God. Once again, in chapter 5, the vessels from the Jerusalem temple are going to show up in the story this morning. This is why the author was so careful to mention the vessels that were taken in the captivity in chapter number 1. When we were in chapter 1, I mentioned it. I said, these will show up later in the story. Be ready. They're going to show up this morning. There are some differences in chapter 5 and the previous four chapters. Uh, In this chapter, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Time has passed. And in this chapter, when you see Daniel appear, Daniel has a very different uh, attitude towards the leadership of this new king. Whereas with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was really gracious. Daniel did not rejoice. Remember when uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went crazy last week and, and became in, temporarily insane for a period of seven years? Daniel did not rejoice in pronouncing judgment on him. He did not take pleasure. The king said, tell me. And he said, man, I don't want to tell you this. He said, I wouldn't wish this, all, you know, except on your enemies. And, and he had a very gracious attitude towards Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, you can tell, cared for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is portrayed in those four chapters as someone who made mistakes, but someone who learned from his mistakes. And he, yeah, he didn't do right. Okay, then he learned from that, and he'd do something stupid. Okay, then he learned from that, and then he'd do something stupid. Then he learned from that. It, I kind of feel at home reading that narrative, to be honest with you. Don't you? Do something stupid, learn from that. Do something stupid, learn from that. You know, and God's being very patient as we move along through our lives. Now, let me give you the timeline so you can understand what happened. The first four chapters about Daniel as a teenager being taken captive into Babylon. It's really the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. You move through all of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and when you cross into chapter 5 now, you've moved beyond... Daniel's still alive, but the king is not alive. Some things have happened inserted between chapters 4 and chapter 5. So here's what we know. We know from historical sources that Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C., after he had ruled for 44 years over the great Babylonian Empire and the wonders of the world that he built in the city. He was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach. What a name. Who names their kid Evil Merodach? I have a feeling the kid named himself this once he got to be an adult, and this is not his birth certificate name that he wanted to be called Evil Knievel, you know what I'm saying, or, or Evil Merodach, and uh, uh, being named after one of their gods. Anyway, he was succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach. Uh, evil Merodach only ruled for a short period of time, two years, 562 to 560. Boom, they killed him. He was executed by uh, Nerigalisser. Nerigalisser then only ruled a few years, 560 to 556. After six years, he was succeeded by his son. Labashi Marduk, he only reigned for a, a few months before they beat him to death, killed him. Uh, you said, well, I want to be king. It's, uh, it's a short lifespan proposition, let me just say that, in these ancient empires. So Nebuchadnezzar reigns 44 years, and then evil Merodach and all of these guys who followed him, none of them made it but a couple of years. One made it six 
and then they're one, one just a couple of months, and they're they're, they're gone. Then comes Nabonidus. Nabonidus is recorded in history as the last king of the Babylonian Empire. So when Cyrus uh, the Mede, when when the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and overthrows Babylon in this story, uh, in 539 B.C., Nabonidus was out in the field. He wasn't in the city of Babylon. He was out in the field fighting with his army against other Uh, divisions of the Medo-Persian army fighting for the survival of the Babylonian Empire. The main uh, character of chapter 5 is a new king who's not even in this list that I gave you. And this is what uh, is very interesting when you open chapter 5 and they're presented with this king who for a long time was not in the history books. Let's get right to the story. It opens with a new king profaning that which is holy. Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, for generations, people were asking, who is this King Belshazzar? He's not in the historic list of kings. We can't find any record of him And until relatively modern times, this was thought to be an error in your Bible. And it was used by critics of the Bible to argue for biblical inaccuracy because the book of Daniel is listing a king here that they can't find, you know, in in the uh, non-biblical record. However, archaeology did its thing. And uh, in time, uh, they began to unearth things. And they begin to dig. And then they begin to discover some cuneiform tablets and they call them cylinders because they're written on a drum, written on a round drum-like cylinder. And after the discovery and decipherment of those cuneiform cylinders in the 19th century, they begin to learn more about this ancient period of Babylonian history. And suddenly they begin to see on the cylinders a name they had never seen before. And lo and behold, the Bible was 100% accurate they begin to see the name on those cylinders of Belshazzar. We now have very solid evidence that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon. And as a matter of fact, he was co-regent, co-ruler over Babylon during the final days of the empire. He was left as co-regent because his dad went out with the army to fight against the Medes and gave him the keys to Babylon and said, you stay here in the city and keep the gates locked and protect uh, the heart of the country while I go fight the Medes out here with the army. And they named him co-king, co-regent with his father uh, for that short period of time while they were under siege by the Medo-Persian Empire. Dad is out fighting, left his son in Babylon. So what do you do when you leave the keys to everything with your kids and go out of town? House party? (laughs) Hello? And so the first thing Belshazzar can think to do while his dad's out fighting for the country is let's throw a party. Now that's where the story opens in chapter 5. The wine is flowing abundantly. That's clear from the text. But a denunciation of wine is not the story that's being told. 
Yes, they're having a great time. But the moral of the story is not about making judgments while under the influence of alcohol. I've already showed you from the book of Esther that making judgments under the influence of alcohol is actually a part of their bizarre culture and how they did that and how they followed it up in the morning when they were sober. It's a whole other sermon I've already preached, but that's not the story that's being told here. The whole focus is about to shift of this story right to the heart. In verse number 2, we're going to get to the real issue of what's happening. Watch the spotlight now fall upon those golden goblets that were stolen from the house of God. Here we get to the heart of the issue. Context. He's thrown a big party. A thousand of his lords. There's more than a thousand people here. There may be ten thousand here though when you see the guest list in a little bit. The wine is flowing. Everyone's decked out. It's a complete chaos. Verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the golden goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from those goblets, and as they drank from those goblets, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Has anybody got a bad feeling about how this is going to go? I can just tell you right there when I'm preparing the sermon, I'm like, you know, insert bad vibes right here. Now, we're not sure what's going on in the young king's mind. We're not sure if anything's going on in his mind. Uh, uh, young King Belshazzar may have been making a, a power play here. This may be a claim to power where he's comparing himself to four kings back, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar the Great did this. Now I'm going to do this. I want everybody to see that there is another uh, incredibly powerful king on the scene now. One he may have wanted to link his name, is what I'm saying, to Nebuchadnezzar the Great by invoking these gold uh, goblets and, and treasures that were taken from the house of God. See, there's another as power. A new Nebuchadnezzar is now on the throne. Or maybe he thought, I'm the most powerful king in the world. The God of the Jews means nothing to me. This was Pharaoh's attitude. I know not your God, Moses. I'm the most powerful thing on planet earth. They call me a god. I don't know your god. Your god is nothing to me. And, and, and maybe, maybe Belshazzar thought this. Nebuchadnezzar took these from Jerusalem and put them here in the treasure house in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar never had the courage to use them. I have the courage to use them. Matter of fact, I'll use them in a worship service to my idols in the middle of this big uh, uh, drunken orgy fest here, and we will worship out of the vessels of God. Now, whatever is going through his mind, we, we certainly don't think they ran out of everyday goblets and got in a goblet crisis and therefore said, oh, 
Dang, we have no more goblets. Hmm, is there any goblets in the kingdom? And somebody said, well, down at the, we don't think that's the story here. They didn't just need goblets. Belshazzar's making a clear statement. Your God is nothing to me. The idols are, will protect me. We are bigger than that. What's worse is Belshazzar takes that which is consecrated and can be used only in holy worship and he profanes it, not just by using it, but by using it as an act of blasphemy and as an act of idolatry with what belongs only to God. As I said when we began, this just cannot end well. Any time one of these kings have challenged God to a raw contest of power, it has never played out the way they thought it would play out. Do not profane that which is holy. Do not worship idols. Do not be filled with pride and arrogance. Learn from Nebuchadnezzar. There's four chapters teaching this lesson four times in a row. Learn from your forefathers. Belshazzar is essentially spitting right in the face of God and he expects it's going to work out fine because his idols are going to protect him. It's not going to work out fine because the writing's on the wall. Now I want you to lock on to this statement for a moment. I'm going to read Daniel chapter 5 verse 5. And suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Let me stop right there for a moment. The writings on the wall. Uh, you would be amazed, and I, and I call it to your attention, you'll start seeing it more and more now that I call it out to you this morning, how Daniel chapter 5 has influenced pop culture and the English language. Uh, for example, the English idiom, hands in the air, your days are numbered, Black Bart, comes right out of this chapter. The English idiom, your days are numbered, the English idiom, the writings on the wall, come right out of Daniel chapter number 5. They're very commonly used idioms, parts of speech, in, which is crazy. 2,500 years later, on the other side of the world, in a completely different language, we're using phraseology that appeared in the court of ancient Babylon. And it's become now uh, a statement of, uh, it's a done deal. Writings on the wall. This can't end well. It's a, it's a statement of foreboding that it's already done. Why? Writings on the wall. Yeah, the, yeah, that guy did something at work and the boss found out. Pfft, writings on the wall. What does that mean? Pfft, he's toast. He's going to get laid off this week. Yeah, this, this is the writings on the wall. Evil foreboding, it's already done. Judgment's going to fall. That's what it means. Okay. And it's become a regular part of, of our uh, American phraseology of the English language. Uh, Belshazzar, this king that's about to be doomed, uh, Belshazzar is actually, uh, uh, George Frederick Handel wrote an oratorio uh, called Belshazzar. And the whole uh, uh, song is about, you guys have a picture of this upstairs? Yeah, for, for sure. The palace. Look at the scene. Scene four. The palace. Belshazzar. Nidocris. Ne I'll introduce her in just a moment. Babylonians and Jews. Blah, and we start the musical. 
Uh, it's amazing how this chapter has touched cultures around the world. Uh, your pop culture. Is that Destiny's Child? Look at the name of the album. The writing's on the wall. Uh, anybody here, uh, maybe a metalhead from the 80s? I see a few of you. Did you listen to any Iron Maiden, Rick? Iron Maiden released uh, just within the last months a video called The Writing on the Wall. Have you seen this yet? Okay, go home. Don't turn my message. Not yet. Stop. Go home this afternoon and Google this. Iron Maiden Writings on the Wall. It, there's a video uh, that they released, which is a, it is a parody against America that we have become Babylon. And when the video opens... On YouTube, you'll see a zombie walking across the desert and like a, a, a playbill, is that what you call it? The, the thing inviting you to a concert? Somebody's passing out playbills and they're blowing across the desert and you can see at the top of the playbill it says, Belshazzar's Feast. And America's being invited to Belshazzar's Feast and it's, it's a pronouncement against you that you have become Babylon. Anyway, Iron Maiden, I'm, I'm not saying they're theologically correct nor promoting them. I'm just saying, it, to me it's absolutely fascinating that this has touched your, your American culture, this Daniel chapter 5 in this way. Now, we know the date that all of this happened because both Herodotus and Xenophon recorded it in their histories. The date is October the 12th, 539 B.C. October the 12th, 539 B.C., the night of Libra rising. It's important. These guys are star watchers. It's the night of Libra rising. Daniel 5.5, 5, here we go. And suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand by the royal, in the royal palace. The king watched the hand, nobody, just a hand, as it wrote, his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners, and he said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads the writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple. You'll have a gold chain placed around your neck, sign of authority and, and, and position, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in. Does anybody know what's going to happen? Same thing that happened four chapters in a row. Then all the king's wise men are going to come in and they could not read the writing nor tell the king what it meant. So Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew pale and his nobles were baffled. Okay, so now let me recap the story to this point. A new king has appeared and now suddenly... A ghoulish hand appears without explanation. There's no doubt in our minds who the hand belongs to. <laughs> Let me say it that way. Whose hand it is. You have already a sense of, I don't believe in your God. Boom, a hand begins to write on the wall. You feel pretty good about saying at this point, that's going to be the hand of God that just showed up, right? And I think you all have that sense the authors designed the story in such a way. But here's the problem. King Belshazzar doesn't know God. He doesn't know your God. And so when he sees a bodiless, ghoulish hand writing on the wall and a finger able to inscribe words in the consummate plaster, <laughs> uh, he's freaked out, terrified, 
physically pale, shaking. Uh, they are terrified as to what they're experiencing. He doesn't know God, but he knows that this hand is not going to be good news. That much he does get. Uh, the reference to the hand of God, let me just explain this quickly, has appeared many times in the scriptures. It's a theme that recurs in the Bible. When the plagues came in the days of Moses uh, and, and the magicians of Egypt and all of this, let me just read Exodus 8 verse 19. The magicians said to Pharaoh when the plagues were happening, this is the finger of God. These plagues that are coming, God is acting. And it's a metaphor for God is doing this. And you're going to be powerless to resist it. God is acting right now. And when they wanted to say God is acting, this is the way they said it. This is the finger of God or this is the hand of God. Exodus 31:18. when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the two tablets of the covenant of the law. You know them as the Ten Commandments. The tablets of stone, look at the phrasing, inscribed by the finger of God. Now, wouldn't those be cool to have? I wonder if God's got neat handwriting. Wouldn't those be cool to have? Now, for Moses broke the first set. You know that already, right? Uh, most expensive artifact in the history of the world. Anyway, Moses broke those on purpose and had to go back up and get two more. And so when he got the second set, you guys know they put them in the Ark of the Covenant. And they carried that around with them in the Ark of the Covenant. Wouldn't that be wild to, to see something that God had literally written with his own finger? Well, again, uh, the psalmist, one of my favorite psalms is Psalms 8. The psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens through the praise of children and infants. You have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Watch this line. When I consider your heavens, the work of your, the sun, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place. The psalmist is writing beautiful worship music and he's looking at the creation and he's saying, oh Lord, our oh Lord, how majestic are you? How great are you? When I see the creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the, na the beauty of this world that you've made, this is the work of your fingers. Now, I'm not saying God's fingers fashioned every rock and tree. What he's saying is it's a metaphor for this is the work of God. This is what God has done. We are the creation of his hands. Now, the finger is writing on the wall. Clearly, you already know, Belshazzar doesn't, you already know this is the hand of God. Now, let me see if I can explain a little bit. The, th the throne room, this room, uh, in Babylon, uh, was excavated in 1899 by Koldui. And uh, so the, the archaeology team comes. They found this temple, this uh, palace, sorry, uh, uh, the ancient palace of Nebuchadnezzar and found the ruins. I told you they took the Ishtar Gate back to Berlin. It's been reconstructed in the Pergamon Museum. Last week you saw those pictures. But uh, they found the palace and they've excavated in 1899. The walls were not intact. You know, obviously war and boom. It was all blown up and in ruins. 
And of course, the message was not found on the wall. Now, you want to talk about a cool artifact. Hey, Spencer, come down here to the basement. I want to show you something. He was saying, where'd you get this? I just, I was traveling and I found this in Babylon. What is it? Uh, Something written with the finger of God into the wall that changed the course of human history. No, they couldn't find that piece of the wall. There was no evidence of it long since deteriorated. And, but here's what they did discover. When Koldui went in and found the palace, he discovered that the walls were plastered with bright white gypsum plaster, which means uh, the palace room was a stark, bright, clean white on the walls, like a white cement plaster, if you would. And when God wrote on the wall and where he wrote over by the candlestick, it would have been clearly identifiable. It would have been crystal clear what, what, that something was happening. No one would have missed it in the bright light uh, of, the, of the palace. Now, Belshazzar sees the writing, but he can't decipher the meaning. So like the kings before him, he calls all of the magi together. But the reader can already anticipate in, by five chapters that the magi are going to be no use whatsoever because when it comes to understanding the wisdom of God, they're completely powerless to help out. So now enter a new character to our story. Here comes the queen mother. Not Belshazzar's wife, old queen, is now about to come into the room. Old queen mother comes in to the room. Now, her name's not given in the biblical text. Handel thinks he knows it because he put it at the top of his score sheet. And the historians think they know which queen it is. The scripture doesn't say exactly, but most likely, this is Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Now, he's been dead for, for some years now. All those other kings in their short reigns, but... Uh, uh, his wife, now widowed, still lives in court. Her name is Nitocris, and she's still exerting her influence in court two decades after her husband has died. And when you meet Nitocris in the scriptures, you're going to immediately like her because she's going to throw some old school sass down on this punk king, and you're going to like it. So just, just watch what she does, okay? So enter in the queen mother now. Everybody's just like, I don't know what it means. Imagine are like, we, we got nothing. And everybody's looking at the writing on the wall. And, you know, everybody's confounded. Here comes Queen Mother, verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Typical greeting of the king. And now here she starts speaking freely. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale! Exclamation point. There is a man in your kingdom... You know what that implies? In a room full of 10,000 people who are whimpering and pale, if we could only find a man who could help us out of this situation and read the writing on the wall, she's sassy. Now, and you've got to read the sass into it because in the original language, this is what she's doing, okay? She comes in here and says, don't be alarmed. What are you so pale about? Listen, there is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Clearly, he's not in this room. Interpretation my own. That's what's happening, okay? There is help to be found, but it's not a bunch of you drunken losers. That's what she's saying, okay? Get rid of the old generation. We don't know anything. We're disposable. She's putting some old school sass on him now. There is a man of God in your kingdom, and in the time of your father, 
used in a figurative sense, not literally his father, because four kings have come now. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him the chief of these fools over here who can't help anybody. My interpretation, mine. That's what's happening, though. Your, your, the great kings, when they existed, they don't exist anymore, had some great advisors, and they could help in times like this with problems like this. Clearly, they're not in the room right now. But I just want to say this. That guy used to be the chief of this whole outfit. Verse 12. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Here's her terse advice. Call for Daniel. Now, I just want to pause right here before I get to my exposition and say this to you. Wouldn't it be a blessing if at your workplace, when nobody could solve the problems and and keep the peace and make things work and figure out business solutions for your company, if God had given you such wisdom and insight and God had blessed you in such a way and you had acted with such honor at work and such graciousness to your co-workers that when they got in a moment of crisis that somebody would say, why don't you go get Daniel? He can guide us through this. Oh, chaos. Why don't you go get Sarah? She'll, she'll show us what to do here. That's my prayer for every one of you. That you would be that type of character in your environment. That God would bless you in such a way and give you such wisdom and a spirit of peace that when everybody's going to pieces, you can step in and say, okay, I'll bring the Spirit of God to bear right now. Let peace come. Let calmness come. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we need to do. It's all going to be fine. And you just exude that calm power of God wherever you go. Queen Mother, in her wisdom, says, call for Daniel, he will tell you what the writing means. Now, uh, you see her sage advice. You need a man of God? Call for Daniel. Now, I can see the secret service. Now, I've got imagination, and you're supposed to read the Bible with a little imagination because all the details aren't there. Call for Daniel! I can see the secret service looking at each other. (laughs) Who is that? Hadn't been around for 20 years. Daniel? You better call the FBI and look him up and see if he can find... Where does he live? Who knows? He hadn't been in court in 20 years. Where is he? He's retired. He's in in an old folks home somewhere. We don't even know where he's at. Somebody get on the phone, see if you can find some guy named Belteshazzar slash Daniel and get him down here because the Queen Mother says it's the only way forward. So they scramble to find him. I don't know, maybe he's living in some royal apartment you know, in a corner of the palace. I don't know. But she is clearly chiding the king, Belshazzar, the king, she's clearly chiding him for panic. She is further chastising him for not knowing who Daniel is. In other words, I think what she's really trying to say is, uh, yeah, I can tell you why you can't read the writing. Where's Daniel? Nobody knows who Daniel is. And she's chiding him for not knowing who Daniel is. Why is the most able person in the city not here behind the controls? What are you doing? You're going to fly this thing into the ground. In the old days, young punk king, Daniel ran this whole operation. Nebuchadnezzar the Great 
trusted Daniel above all of his advisors. Now, she's insulted that the king has disregarded the wisdom that built the great empire. That's what's really happening. You see, Babylon's over tonight. When I say over, I mean done. The Babylonian empire ends tonight. And evidently it had been declining rapidly under the new leadership. And the old queen mother comes in and says, Somebody built a great kingdom, my husband, and gave it to you guys. You didn't build it or earn it. And you've done nothing but run it into the ground. And now it's weak and it is going to fall. I think that's really what she's upset about. Daniel out of retirement. Here we go. 23 years have passed since Nebuchadnezzar died. Daniel is around 80 years old now. No longer a teenager kidnapped from Israel. Now he's an 80-year-old man living in obscurity. No one knows this man who once ran the affairs of the empire. He's living silently, not in the spotlight anymore. You know, that's hard. Uh, when you've lived in the spotlight, it's hard not to live in the spotlight. You'll see this struggle among powerful or famous people. Daniel's been living in obscurity for 23 years. You say, what's he been doing? Living his life. That's all. Living his life. And there's nothing wrong with that. He's been praying. He's been worshiping. He's been writing the Bible. He's been reading the Bible. He's been waiting for God to do the next thing God's going to do. And the whole time he's been waiting in those 23 years, he's been ready in case God needed him. Waiting in case somebody summoned him to step back into the spotlight and pick right up where he left off. He's been anticipating that change would come. And with that change, deliverance from God would also come to the people of Israel Daniel's now called out of retirement to speak for God in a completely new generation that had not heard Daniel's voice nor God's voice. If time was not my enemy this morning, I'd love to speak to all of you in the room who have entered the retirement stage of your life. I have strong views on this. Your children are grown, your bills are paid. Your house is paid for. You're in one of the greatest seasons of life to serve God. Serve God. Let Daniel be a role model to you. Yeah, I know you move a little slower and you have a few more aches. That just comes with the miles. I get it. I'm living it myself. But for those of you who have entered into the retirement phase of your life, Michael Guevara, are you in the room this morning anywhere? Mike? Praise God. I, I just want to say this. Mike probably totally embarrassed and want to hide. He's down here almost every day at the church doing something. Manual labor. Construction. Hauling out sheetrock, throwing it in the dumpster, and you know, just all kinds of stuff. You say, well, he's a hardy construction worker. He's a retired accountant from New York. <laughs> down here working almost every day. You know, why? Just wants to be a blessing. He's got a little time on his hands, wants to do something, stay sharp, be active. And I just want to say, there's more of you. Come and join Mike. Plan some mission trips, you retired people. Let's get you overseas, being a blessing to somebody. Let, let's get you, keep you active. 
This is a great season of life to serve God. And I wish I had more time, as I said, because I'd flip over to you that are pre-children, and I'd say the same thing. Before you have 17 kids and, and get too vested in your career, it's a great season of life to serve God while you're young and, and have fewer responsibilities in life. You know what I'm saying? When you're free and unattached, go crazy serving Jesus. Because you get to a season where you need to slow down and be stable and be a parent. And you have kids. And that's good. And there's nothing wrong with that. And you're going to be in routines, routines, routines. But then when you get out of that on the other side, all of you who just dropped kids off at the university this week, empty nest. Here we go. Party at your house, okay? Yeah. Okay, so Daniel's called out of retirement. When Daniel comes into the, to the throne room now, he's waiting for God to use him. And he's about to speak for God. And when he gets into the throne room, Belshazzar, the king, starts insulting him right out of the gate. The young king starts dismissing the old advisor. Now, I want to remind you, Daniel was chief of the Magi. Chief, like vice president, prime minister of the Babylonian Empire for 50 years. He knows a little bit about politics. He knows a little bit about people. He knows a little bit about taxation and warfare. He knows a little bit about everything. This is a a sharp, sharp man. Daniel was the most influential person for 50 years in that kingdom. And when he comes to meet the new king, the king starts insulting him right out of the gate by trying to put Daniel in his place. He immediately calls Daniel not by his Babylonian name, but by his Jewish name. He immediately reminds Daniel and everyone in the room that this person is a slave who was captured as a spoil of war, emasculated, and renamed, and reprogrammed, and brought back as a hostage. He immediately tries to put him down when he comes into the presence of the new king. Let me read it. You'll see it. So Daniel went before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel? The queen just told him that his name was Belteshazzar. That's what Nebuchadnezzar called him. He immediately flips, and he's using it as an insult. That's what I want you to know. You're Daniel, the Jew, right? Okay. That you're one of the slaves, the exiles that we captured and my father brought from Judah, right? Yeah, you're nobody to me. I'm the king of the world. 14. I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and the enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. They could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple royalty. You will be given a gold chain placed around your neck. And you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Now here's what I gave you, why I gave you the history of the kings. Belshazzar does not offer to Daniel the second slot. I'll make you the second most powerful. He has to offer him the third slot. You say why? Because daddy is out in the field fighting. He is the real king. I'm the punk kid who's the co-regent. I'm the second king. And the best I could do for you is make you number Three, So Belshazzar uh, thinks that he's dealing with Snoop Dogg or somebody. And he dangles some gold chains out here in front of Daniel. 
and says, Daniel, I'll give you some baubles and some trinkets. I'm sure you're materialistic like all of my other advisors. So I'll just offer you some materialism here and see how high you can jump. Do you all think that's going to work on Daniel? No, Daniel is not motivated by the king's trinkets. Furthermore, the gifts are meaningless because the king has nothing to give. He has no real power. His kingdom is over in about five minutes. Verse 17, watch Daniel throw some sass down. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself. I'll give you these gifts and make you the third. Daniel says, you can keep your trinkets for yourself or you can give your reward to someone else. You do whatever you want to do. Do you sense a different tone here? This is not the way Daniel talked to Nebuchadnezzar. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for you and I will tell you what it means. Daniel has not mis uh, misinterpreted the intentional slight the king gave him. And so now he's going to give the king back a little sass. Totally different tone than he had with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18, here it comes. Your majesty, let's talk about where power comes from. The most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. It came from God because of the high position God gave him. He gave him. That's God gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared them. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted them. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled them. In other words, the king had all kinds of crazy power. No equivalent in your modern society at all. President's power comes nothing close to this. But what he's saying is the most powerful man in the earth got his power from God. And it was given to him by God. Verse 20, watch this. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with wild donkeys. Now can you imagine this line being delivered by Daniel to a king? You're, 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 he lived with the wild donkeys. And he ate grass like an ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and God will give those kingdoms to whoever He wants to give them to. Now here's the real message being preached right here. God is in charge despite present circumstances. And that's the message that Daniel's relaying. What a concise recap of four chapters of Babylonian history too. Daniel just told the whole story of four chapters in that one paragraph in your Bible. This is what happened to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what he learned. And clearly, you haven't learned. Verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. This never ends well for a, a, a king. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. 
But you did not honor the God, watch this line, who holds in His hand, what? God holds in His hand, what? This morning, ladies and gentlemen, nothing has changed. God holds in His hand your life. And when you disregard that hand, it may write on the wall. You say, well, whose hand is that? The same hand that's holding me in existence is communicating to the nations now. The hand, you keep coming back to the hand now. Yeah, that hand that you dreaded and feared that wrote on the wall up there, that's something, isn't it? Mm -mm -mm. Did you know that that's the same hand that's holding your life in existence right now? And if God took His hand off you for one minute, you'd be gone. Verse 24, Therefore, He sent the hand to write the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mine, mine, same word twice for emphasis, tekel parson. Here is what these words mean. Mine, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. It's over tonight. Tekel You've been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, my time's almost out, but let me just give you a little, little lesson right here. The writing on the wall was written by God in ancient Aramaic. The Babylonians did not speak Aramaic. <laughs> they spoke Chaldean. And when the language was written on the wall, although there's multilingual people in the room, nobody could read the, the language. Aramaic descends from the Phoenician alphabet. Here's what you want to know. Writing systems like Aramaic indicate consonants but do not indicate vowels other than by means of matris lectionis or diacritical signs. <laughs> Let me make it simpler for you. Stay with me. Don't lose me at the late hour. Such languages are called abgads. I know. Stay with me. An abgad is a writing system which only the consonants are represented and the vowels are inferred by the reader. You have to supply the vowels. Now, I could do this in English, but I don't have time, where I could put a word up here with no vowels in it, and you guys could just shout out the word. Your mind will fill in the, the vowels because you're that sharp of people and it's your language and you get it, right? The ancient system is this way. So here's what was written on the wall, M-N-H-M-N-H-T-Q-L-P-R-S. Now, to make things more complicated, a lot of the ancient writing systems don't use any punctuation, no capitalization, and they jam all the letters together. So a lot of your Greek manuscripts of the New Testament are written in this same type of thing. Uh, and so this is like what they might have seen on the wall, but in Aramaic language. And the little breathing marks, like little diacritical signs, uh, are added only to help you supply the vowels. And it depends on how you breathe and enunciate. The word can have different meanings because you can supply different vowels. Now, what do, I, I don't want to lose you. So let me put dashes. So wherever there's a dash, you have to supply a vowel. Okay? Now, depending on what vowels you supply, you can get multiple meanings, right? Multiple words. So this is what's so clever. It, we lose all of this when it's translated from, 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 from Aramaic over into English in your Bible. This is totally wordplay. God's, God's throwing down a wordplay on them. God, not only is God judging them 
and showing up in the middle of their, their banquet. But God's like, clever. I'm going to say fun because it's not really a fun situation. But God's clever. If you don't know this about God already, you've missed a whole part of his personality. Some of you who enjoy sarcasm and cleverness, it's part of your personality. You're made in the image of God. It's part of God's personality too. He's incredibly clever and incredibly fun. And so when God writes on the wall, they're all like, we have no idea. Daniel comes down and says, oh, that's, that's good, good one, God. Uh, he comes down and sees this and he can read it. And depending on how you breathe determines the vowels, diacritical sign. And so Daniel sees this and he said it's got like four or five different meanings depending on how you say it. Okay? So it can mean, they're all nouns. And as nouns, they're units of money. A mina, a shekel, and a half shekel. As nouns, it's money. Mina, mina, it's one word emphasized twice. Shekel, half shekel. But Daniel, when he gives the interpretation, vocalizes them as verbs. So when Daniel gives the king the interpretation, he's flipped it and he said it means numbered, weighed, divided. But if you vocalize it differently again, you get Belshazzar, you've been appointed, God decides who rules, evaluated, and now you're going to be punished because you don't weigh, you don't measure up. You vocalize it a different way, and it can mean this. He has paid out. You are too light. Persia! That's a fourth meaning. Isn't that wildly interesting? The scales permeate all four definitions. Something's being weighed in the balance scales. The, the scales gain further significance when you realize these are Star Watcher people and the annual rising of Libra took place on the night that Babylon falls. And the per- Tonight, tonight is the rising of Libra and tonight Babylon will fall and the Persia come on in. Does anybody know the zodiac sign for Libra? Daniel's reading the writing and he's like, Daniel's the chief of the Magi. Do you think he knew it was the night of Libra rising? He's known it all day, just waiting for it to happen tonight. It's a big deal on their calendar. Daniel walks in and says, Libra rising? God, you're hilarious. Weighed in the balances and found wanting? Oh, this guy's toast. Sir, you may keep your gifts. Now do you understand the sass of this? Or you may give them to another, if you survive the night. And uh, that's exactly what's happening now. I want you to feel all of that, all of that drama. Babylon uh, ascended to be the greatest empire in the world. God determined it, but it was temporary. Listen, Americans, it was temporary. Human empires don't last. You say, yeah, but... Human empires don't last. Your kids or our grandkids or their grandkids, somebody's going to be listening to a replay of this one day and they're going to say, yeah, he told us. Empires don't last. 
And God puts one down and he raises another one up. And now the Babylonian Empire, after only 70 years, has come to its conclusion. You have not measured... You were given a kingdom, Belshazzar. You have not measured up to the greatness I put in your care. If I would have any message for our own country, which I don't want to over-politicize this, is we need to be great for God. Measure up. God has given you something, namely freedom and prosperity and liberty and all uh, freedom of speech, live up to that. All right, let's get quickly to our conclusion now. Reward and punishment. Let me read the last verses. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed. They, so they gave him the reward anyway. At Belshazzar's command, they clothed him in purple. A chain of gold was placed on his neck. And he was proclaimed to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. Boom. It's over. Just like that. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. You say, why didn't Daniel care for the gifts? Daniel knew that in a few hours it wouldn't matter. The enemy was at the gates and they will be here in just a few hours. Babylon is finished. And as God punishes the Babylonians, God blesses His people. Because the Babylonians were the instrument of punishment for God's people. Now that God's people have been punished, now when Darius the Mede comes in, which is going to be our next few sermons coming, when we talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, you're under the reign of the Medes and Persians, and immediately Darius says, free God's people. Let them go back to Israel, let them rebuild, and let them prosper in their own land. Now let me close with this. I want to challenge you right here. How are we to live in relation to God's judgment today? Because this is very much a chapter about judgment. The handwriting's on the wall. And when I say to you the writing's on the wall, you, it's a portent of doom. It's a portent of punishment. You know that judgment is at the door and cannot be stopped. So I want to ask you, you read a story like this in the Old Testament. What is our relationship to God's judgment today? To what extent can we look at tragedy today and say with confidence, this is the judgment of God? Does God judge people today as He judged Belshazzar? In other words, the Germans are defeated, 1945. Hitler flees to a bunker, commits suicide. Is this the judgment of God? An atomic bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. Is this the judgment of God? An epidemic rips through the gay community. Is this the judgment of God? An abortion clinic is bombed in Atlanta. Is this the judgment of God? A child molester is beaten in New Jersey. Is this the judgment of God? A famous star's helicopter crashes in California. Is this the judgment of God? How about this? A Christian missionary dies in Pakistan. Is that the judgment of God? How about this? A Baptist church is invaded and shot up and everybody's killed in the room in Texas. 
Is that the judgment of God? How about this? COVID sweeps across the planet, killing every kind of people. Christians too. Is this the judgment of God? Is there a contrast between this Old Testament God of judgment and this New Testament Jesus that you're having trouble reconciling? Are they the same? Some of the theologians who've come in past history thought maybe there's two different gods because this New Testament Jesus was so loving and kind and compassionate and forgiving. They had trouble reconciling the book of Exodus again that says that God has a nature that is both blessing and if you persist in doing wrong, judgment will come upon you. No, it's the same God. It's just the fullness of who He is. Here's what I want to say to you this morning. There is a strong, strong teaching in God's Word that God's followers are not in a position to judge others. Stay with me now. Don't tune me off in this next minute. There is strong teaching in the New Testament that God's people are not to judge others. Matter of fact, probably the most famous verse, it has displaced John 3.16. I almost preached a whole sermon on this. The most famous verse today is Matthew 7. Do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The old KJV, judge not that ye be not judged. Paul echoes the same thing, Romans 2. Therefore you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point, uh, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you also do the same things. In other words, you live in glass houses, you can't throw rocks. If you're a sinner, be careful about pointing out someone else's sin. Now, let me say this as I wrap. God does judge, but we cannot know with certainty when suffering and death is God's judgment and when it's not. I know this goes against the grain for the way many of you were brought up. With that in mind, you must resist the urge to speak. You must carefully keep your mouth shut because you do not know if a calamity is God's judgment or not. It is frankly above your pay grade. Let me give you the talking point that you may want to see it in writing. We must never offer our opinion that a suffering person or a tragic situation is God's judgment. Now I've broken this a thousand times. And I'm repenting of it today and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. And I know for those of you who are brought up in my tradition, what you're saying right now is, yeah, but Daniel just did. King, you're judged. Keep your crap. You know, God's going to wipe you off the map. This is a judge. Yeah, I know Daniel did, but there's a big difference between you and Daniel. The difference is that Daniel was a recipient of divine revelation. You haven't written any books of the Bible. His words are not his own words. His words are his uh, interpretation of God's judgment upon Belshazzar. When Daniel is speaking, he is speaking as God's official mouthpiece against the king of the world. I don't think you're in those same shoes this morning. I don't think you have that right this morning. 
And since none of us are in the exact shoes of Daniel, see like the book of Job cautions us to be very careful that we don't say all suffering is because of people's sin. You hear this on the TV and the radio a lot. They have your suffering, you have any faith. Listen, good people in the Bible who were God's best people suffered sickness. The disciples of Jesus made this exact classic mistake. They were very quick to judge. Now I want to remind you of this. They looked at a blind man, John 9 verse 2, and his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus looks at them and said, you guys are jerks. How cruel. I mean, the question is cruel. Have you ever been sick? Well, who sinned? You or your, your family? That you got a sickness. Jesus looked at them like, what are you guys talking about? You're so quick to judge. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Stop it. Why do you think this is a result of that? This happened so the works of God might be displayed in his life. Your question is so cruel. You think you've got it all figured out. Tornado rips through a community. Oh, there's the hand of God. You know, so, oh, there's God judging America. Oh, there's God judging the gay community. Oh, there's God judging the Christian. Well, there's God. We're just walking, talking judgments, aren't we? What I'm saying to you this morning is it's cruel to live that way and you don't have the authority to do that. Many people look at a person infected with AIDS and they mutter in their heart, well, there's God's judgment on that lifestyle right there. Well, let me ask you a question. What about cancer that your family experienced? Is that also God's judgment upon your sin? What about diabetes that your parents suffered with? Is that also God's judgment upon your, your family? What about heart disease that about 50% of the people in the room have this morning? Is that also God's judgment on sin? I would say this to you this morning. AIDS is no more of a judgment of God than any other disease. Sickness itself is a result of sin. The brokenness of the planet is a result of sin. But we have to be careful and stop saying this is a special judgment of God designed just for you. You're not authorized to make that proclamation. What about the child who contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion? You're going to keep that same tone now and say, well, this is, you know, God's special judgment against the gay. The child's not gay. It's a child who got a blood transfusion. You say it doesn't happen. We had one in the youth department when I was a youth pastor. It does happen. I just want to say to you, I want you to be very careful this morning. Your role is not to play judge. Your role, according to the New Testament, is to offer the good news of Jesus Christ. That through Him, anyone has an opportunity to repent of their sins and find forgiveness and find mercy. That anyone can be reconciled to God. Uh, that anyone can be His precious child and find peace and find a life worth living. We are not in the condemnation business here at Cornerstone Church. You are God's advocates for the gospel. The good news 
of Jesus Christ. Jesus came forth preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is here. And we are not allowed to say that someone is under the judgment of God or that they are beyond forgiveness or that they are beyond mercy. Listen, in a world filled with trouble, your role is to offer hope. Not to condemn everyone. Your role is to offer words of life, words of hope, words of encouragement. I want to say again, we do not seek the destruction of godless people. We seek their redemption. We seek them coming our family, our brothers and sisters. And let me remind every believer listening in a foreign country, be careful when you judge because you and I both know we still commit sins. And Paul said, be careful who you condemn another because you also still sin. So I would just say to you this morning, let's focus on repenting of our own and judging this right here, you know, and not be judges of society. Focus more on being transformed by the yielding to God's Holy Spirit. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Quite a fascinating story about the judgment of God upon Babylon. I know you're not in Babylon. I know you're not an idol worshiper. And you may be saying, Pastor, I, I didn't know how God would speak to my heart this morning in that story, but now I'm, I'm finding I can hear the voice of God. Daniel did judge. He did pronounce God's judgment against Babylon. That's not our role. It's not our role. One thing I had to repent of when I was preparing this sermon is, is being that person. I definitely have done that so many times. God really opened my eyes that that's not my role. Maybe you need to do what I had to do these past few weeks as I was preparing. And just have a time where you say to God, God forgive me. I've been judge and jury. That's not my role. If you're here this morning you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, maybe the handwriting of conviction is in your heart this morning and the Holy Spirit's speaking to you that you need to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That sin in your life that weighs so heavy, the fears, the anxiety, being distant and outside of a relationship with God or they're real and you can feel them the only way to find peace is through a relationship with Jesus Christ if you're ready to take that step and receive him as your Lord and Savior there are deacons in the back of the room just standing against the back wall and they're there to help you when you're ready to pray and receive Christ as your Savior you just at any point, just slip out of your seat, go back there and tell them, pray with me, I need to receive Christ. And in just one minute, they're going to pray with you and show you how to receive Christ into your heart and find the peace and forgiveness that only God can bring. God speak into your heart. I just want you to talk back to him for just a moment. Whatever he's saying, say, yes, Lord, I hear you.
Father, your people are bowed before you this morning. We've humbled ourselves before you and acknowledge that every blessing, all authority, all power, every good and perfect gift comes down from you, from our Father. And God, we acknowledge your sovereignty over our lives and over this universe. God, thank you for putting people in this room in positions of authority. Lord, may they use that for your kingdom. Father, would you bless us? Bless us. Bless our children. Lord, let them come into positions of influence that they might influence for your kingdom and advocate for righteousness. Advocate for the gospel. Father, so many times we have made snap judgments and offhanded remarks about our sense of justice that people are getting what they deserve and this must be the hand of God moving against them in judgment. And yet, God, when we get sick or we have a setback, we never think the same about ourselves. We think it's Satan attacking us. God, forgive us for the double standard. God, forgive us for getting out of our lane and more trying to assume your role than our role. God, when we see people that are hurting and suffering, may we be moved with compassion to do what you did in the New Testament, to go and give them a hug and a touch and hope and encouragement and introduce them to the Savior of the world who can turn their entire story around. God, maybe in this full, first full week of the school year, you're going to use one of our students this week to be a blessing to a classmate or to a teacher or to someone. God, I pray that you'd put words of hope and life and encouragement on their lips. God, bless our week and ordain it with your loving kindness. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. Our benediction from the book of Numbers that we've been with for a few months now. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor. And may the Lord give you peace. That's our prayer over you this week. God bless you. You guys enjoy next week. Pastor Josh will have the message.